again, lorazepam or Ativan, four milligrams times two doses, or midazolam, 10 milligrams intramuscularly times one. These are doses that you should feel comfortable with that are both appropriate and safe. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit. And I'm Matt Mendez. Matt, I think we need to start out today by apologizing to our listeners. We did not release an episode last month. This is the first time since we started uh, this a little over a year ago that we failed to release an episode in the month, but we were a little busy at the end of June. Yeah, June was pretty crazy, a bit of a whirlwind. We were both graduating residency, and as chiefs, we had to organize a lot of the final events in the end of year wrap up. And to be honest, we also took a vacation. Yeah. Uh, Matt will now be starting full-time clinically as faculty at the university of Colorado emergency department. And I've started a fellowship in EMS. So both of us are very much staying in academics and looking to continue this and our pursuits of education and specifically this podcast. That being said, uh, both of our jobs, lawyers would like us to make explicitly clear, um, in case this wasn't clear before, that these views and the views expressed on this podcast represent the personal opinions of those on the podcast and do not represent medical advice or the opinions of our prospective employers. Now, do you have to say it too for it to be binding? Should you say it? I don't think so because you said both of ours. Okay. Yeah. I think it's, it, as long as one person says the views on this podcast – like all encompassing. All right. I think so. Sounds good. We're going to keep all that in. (laughs) Now that we've made excuses for ourselves and appeased our lawyers, let's jump into the episode. I can't wait. What do you got for us today, Ross? Today, we're going to be talking about seizures and specifically the drugs we use to treat seizures. I brought clinical pharmacist extraordinaire and full-time babysitter Lance Ray back on the podcast to teach us. I'm the clinical pharmacy specialist in emergency medicine at Denver Health, and I'm also the PGY2 pharmacy residency program director. We have a PGY2 pharmacy residency uh, with one resident, but uh, it's a full-time job to coordinate him. Thanks for coming on, Lance. Yeah, happy to be here. We're going to be talking about, a, I think, really important topic for EMS, and that is uh, appropriate approach to medications uh, in regards to someone who's having a seizure and and almost more specifically somebody who may be having a prolonged seizure or frequent seizures such as as status epilepticus. And I think this is super important. It's always challenging when we do these talks to talk about medications because a lot of it is going to be based on what medications you have in your agency and what your agency's protocols are going to be. So As always, with any of our episodes, refer to your own protocols to make sure that you're adhering to those. But we're going to talk about kind of some best practices across the board. So Lance, why is this topic really so important to us and relevant to us in the pre-hospital setting? 
So this topic is important. As we all know, seizures contribute to significant morbidity and mortality throughout the world and, and have several different etiologies. Rather than just epilepsy as a disease state, these could arise from stroke, uh, drug overdose, uh, and, and such. So paramount to treating seizures is treating early and adequately. And that's really what we'll hit home on. So I think an important place to start for this topic is to really just discuss what type of seizures require medications to abort. Right. So with that, we really kind of have to start with the definition of seizures and status, epilepticus. Uh, so in 1981, the International League Against Epilepsy, and in 1993 with the Epilepsy Foundation, uh, kind of started with the working uh, definition of a seizure lasting more than 30 minutes or two or more seizures without a return to consciousness between those. Of course, a seizure lasting 30 minutes is a long time. Uh, organizations decided this this definition in itself could lead to permanent brain injury. So now we work under the most recent definition of status epilepticus from 2015, and that's defined as a seizure lasting more than five minutes or two or more seizures without a return to baseline. So when do we need to treat seizures? Do we need to, as soon as somebody starts seizing in front of us, do we need to start giving them medications or when, when is it important to actually treat these with meds? So most seizures will not self-abort after two to three minutes and a longer a seizure lasts, the less effective these therapies may be and become more refractory the longer they last. This is a really important point to highlight. The vast majority of seizures will abort in less than two minutes. Yeah, that's correct. In fact, patients with epilepsy will often be given rescue medications to go home with to abort seizures. But the patient and family are often given the counseling of if the seizure does not self-abort in less than five minutes, then go ahead and give them abortive medications. As you said, most seizures will self-abort, but if it doesn't self-abort in under two to five minutes, then it is unlikely to self-abort on its own. And the earlier we give those medications, the more effective they are. Yeah, that's the other big take home I just heard Lance say is, you know, the longer a seizure lasts, the more refractory it becomes. The longer you wait to provide medical therapy past that three to five minutes, and more importantly, not just any medical therapy, but the appropriate pharmacotherapy at the appropriate dose, then the less likely your therapy is to break the seizure. In other words, if you don't act fast enough and you don't act appropriately, that seizure is just going to get harder and harder to break for everyone that sees that patient down the line. Absolutely. And that's a little bit of foreshadowing there as we, as shortly we'll get into what is the appropriate first line agent and what should our upfront dose be. But why is it so important that we stop the seizure, Ross? Why is it so important that we stop the seizure? Several adverse effects, you know, involved with this, of course, is hypoxia uh, and, and just an overall morbidity and mortality. And, and, and as we know, seizures lasting more than 30 minutes can cause irreversible neurological damage. All right. So when we come on scene to the seizing patient, obviously, just like with every other patient, we're going to start with our ABCs, IV access. And then we move on to, okay, this patient has been seizing for more than two to three minutes. We know that it's unlikely to stop on its own at this point, and we should definitely move forward with pharmacologic treatment. What's the most common pitfalls we make as, as providers when we're treating this? Yeah, the most common mistake I see in the emergency department with the treatment of status is not appropriately dosing our first-line agents, these being benzodiazepines. I think there's a really natural tendency to worry about over-sedating the patient with large doses of benzos. But first, let's discuss the appropriate utilization of medications and status. So we have two first-line options, lorazepam or Ativam. 
And this is to be given at four milligrams as a first dose. And it can be repeated once more as another four milligram dose before either calling it refractory to first line and moving on to something else. Four milligrams, that's a whopping dose. Yeah, this is much higher than our standard starting dose for any other indication of lorazepam or Ativan in the ED. But just remember, the longer the patient is seizing, the more refractory they become. So you want to give a dose that's going to give you the best shot of breaking this seizure on the first try. Is that the dose for pediatrics too, for kids? No, so this is the adult dose. The weight-based dose is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram up to a max of four milligrams. So if we're talking about an adult, almost every adult is going to be heavier than 40 kilograms and thus will max out at the four milligram dose. Again, this can be repeated times one. So four milligrams followed by another four milligrams of our most common lorazepam. I know that a lot of pre-hospital services stock midazolam. This is an equally... Uh, acceptable option. However, technically it's recommended to be given intramuscular. You can also give it IV, which we do a lot of times, but uh, in terms of the appropriate doses for midazolam, we want to start with 10 milligrams intramuscularly. As we know, getting IV access is important, um, but in the field, the intramuscular route is an option and should be used to achieve rapid termination of seizure activity. Yeah, often when you come across a patient who's seizing, it can be extremely challenging to get IV access because they're flailing their arms back and forth. Um, and so oftentimes it's, it's just much easier to give it intramuscularly up front. Is there weight-based dosing for uh, mendazolam too? When our weight is below 40 kilos, it's a 0.2 milligrams per kilogram dosing. So again, 0.2 mg per kg versus lorazepam, which is 0.1 or 10 milligrams if they're uh, above 40 kilograms or an adult patient. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence surrounding treating the treatment of status epilepticus. I'm glad you asked, Ross. If you're interested in pulling some literature, there's a good set of guidelines, uh, which is sort of all-encompassing on how to treat status epilepticus. These are really kind of the go-to guidelines. They're easily digestible, and it's really a great starting point for treatment of status. Um, so, so check out the 2016 guidelines. This is the guidelines for treatment of prolonged seizures in children and adults published in February 2016 from the American Epilepsy Society. Uh, and they talk about some of this literature. But when I think about status, there's, there's really like four landmark trials out there that deal with this. Uh, and two of them are pre-hospital, which we can uh, talk about. It's obviously right up our, our, our alley here with what we're talking about or what your podcast is. So I'll briefly talk about those two trials because uh, they really highlight some, some treatment pearls and some takeaways when treating status. So there was the pre-hospital treatment of status epilepticus. That was what it was called, PHTSE trial in 2002. So this study really solidified the place for benzos as first-line therapy for status, and that it can be safe and effective and should be given in the pre-hospital setting. So again, it was a pre-hospital study in about 200 patients. It compared lorazepam, four milligrams, to diazepam, 10 milligrams, to placebo. Now, how they were able to include a placebo arm is, well, something that we wouldn't do today. Essentially, it showed that lorazepam and diazepam are both safe and effective and should be given in the pre-hospital setting. I guess the reason they did this study is because we really hadn't established anything, was pick up the patient and take him to the nearest hospital. Well, what it really showed us, and a takeaway from me, is that this trial 
was that the rate of respiratory compromise and respiratory depression was at least at as high and numerically almost double as high in the placebo group compared to these large doses of benzodiazepines in the active arms. So in other words, we shouldn't be scared of cardiorespiratory compromise while treating patients with adequate doses of benzodiazepines. Again, the placebo arm fared worse numerically, wasn't statistically significant, but these patients at least had as much cardiorespiratory compromise. So patients left in status may very well do worse. So what you're saying is a patient who's left in status is more likely to have respiratory compromise than, say, a patient who you give a whopping dose of a benzodiazepine to, like in this study. Precisely. So again, I think that a general there's a general fear of giving benzos and benzo intoxication with status, and it was hopefully put to rest after the study. But again, the study was in 2002. Uh, we're still a little hesitant sometimes to use these adequate doses of benzodiazepines. Secondly, the other pre-hospital study was more recent. It was called the Rampart trial. And this was a really pragmatic study in pre-hospital patients published in 2012, almost 1,000 patients with status. So on the premise that rapid termination is paramount, this protocol randomized patients to either intravenous Ativan, entailing somebody's getting an IV line, or intramuscular midazolam. And so they randomized, hey, you're gonna get an IV line followed by Ativan, or you're just gonna get IM midazolam off the bat. So the average time to treatment with midazolam was just over one minute, which makes sense. And the average time to treatment with lorazepam was 4.8 minutes. So in other words, it took about four minutes to get an IV. And this really highlights, uh, uh, this really highlights the, the trouble and uh, does take a few minutes to get an IV. I think these are actually pretty good rates. Uh, so midazolam turned out to be at least as effective and they did a sub-analysis and the midazolam arm was actually superior in addition to this non-inferiority trial. So it really solidified midazolam's place as a pre-hospital intramuscular therapy. So I know a popular question will be, one, how did the doses of midazolam and lorazepam compare? You know, are these equal doses? Well, they've sort of been deemed equal doses, and that's what a lot of the work that went into this trial, a lot of the pre-work that went into this trial was all about. Two, where's the literature for intravenous midazolam, right? We talk about intramuscular midazolam, and there's really not any. Um, it's recommended in the guidelines to give midazolam or Versed as intramuscular. But common wisdom tells us that if we do have an IV line, we have midazolam, that's the drug that we have on our rig, that it's in fact active when given IV and works at, at least as fast. So we do, and so I would feel safe, even though midazolam is recommended as intramuscularly, we can and should give it intravenously. As far as midazolam and lorazepam intravenously, they're probably equal, uh, and yeah, that's all I'll say about that. What about lorazepam intramuscularly? So we kind of get into this idea that, well, we can switch these therapies from intramuscular IV. I think the only time that I would pause is lorazepam or Ativan given intramuscularly. If you've ever pulled it up, 
it's a very viscous solution. And a lot of us pharmacists believe that it, it might not have as adequate absorption or as quick absorption. However, once it is in the bloodstream, it crosses the blood-brain barrier uh, and acts very quickly. But uh, it's the one thing that I would probably shy away from, either pre-hospital or in the uh, emergency department, is giving intramuscular lorazepam. Interesting. So as we're going through our differential for the seizing patient, uh, does the etiology or the cause of the patient's seizure play into at all how we're going to treat them or what meds we're going to use? I think that's a great question, Ross. I don't think anything is a substitution for supportive care. There's lots of different etiologies for why somebody's having a seizure, things such as hypoglycemia. Um, so I think good supportive care, checking blood sugars, giving dextrose if indicated and all that. But ultimately, no. From a treatment standpoint, it doesn't matter from my perspective what's causing this seizure. We want to treat it early and adequately. So as long as it's not hypoglycemia, that's the etiology of the seizure, then benzodiazepines are going to be the mainstay of first-line therapy as we continue the diagnostic evaluation. Now, I know that the medics listening to this podcast are nerds, and they're going to want to know about things like medication toxicity, like isoniazid, or if the patient's having eclampsia, is it still benzodiazepines? And the answer is yes. You treat the seizure with benzodiazepine as you treat the underlying cause at every single possible etiology of seizure. Yeah, I might also add hypoxia into that list, but you know, as Lance said, good supportive care with ABCs and checking a sugar are still going to be paramount. And these are going to be first-line therapy. So don't forget about these. But then at the end of the day, all of these patients should probably get benzos. And the hallmark of some of those issues that you just mentioned, specifically isoniazide, is it's benzo-refractory seizures. So you're still giving benzos up front to try to treat all of these patients in addition to moving forward to your other medications if you need to. Yep. How we diagnose isoniazid or what makes us think about it or eclampsia. Hey, did you get that pregnancy test is when the benzos aren't working. So we need you to give them so that we can use that as part of our diagnosis. So say we're in an agency that has RSI capabilities or we have a long transport. We have a patient who has a refractory seizure who's not adequately protecting their airway and we're thinking about moving towards intubation with RSI. Are there any considerations with regards to our RSI agents? So we could spend a whole hour on RSI agents, as I'm sure you can imagine, and it, we can really get into the weeds on this. I'm a believer in keeping it simple and dividing it. Okay, when we talk about RSI, we divide it into our induction agents, our, sed our sedation agents, and our paralytics. So to begin with RSI and our induction agents for sedation, Thankfully, most sedatives work through the same mechanism that we want for status, and that's through GABA and GABAergic or GABA agonist. So etomidate, ketamine, midazolam, and propofol are all equally acceptable from my standpoint. They all, to some extent, work on GABA. Midazolam and propofol are super attractive, right? Well, the problem with these medications is that the doses that we need for adequate sedation prior to paralyzing someone actually get quite large. So we're talking in 20 to 30 milligrams of midazolam and one to two milligrams per kilogram of propofol as our indicated doses for induction. So these doses of propofol will cause significant hypotension and really 
precludes its use in any RSI. So I would strongly caution propofol. Midazolam, we're just drawing up so much and it does take a little longer for midazolam to work. Um, so while these are really attractive agents, we know they work on GABA receptors, um, really sticking with the basics of atomidate and even ketamine is an acceptable agent. As far as paralysis goes, either succinylcholine or rocuronium or vacuronium, which I know some transport services have in their supply, all of those are acceptable. I think just knowing the pros and cons and limitations of each of these agents is important. So the main concern with succinylcholine is, well, the patient's been seizing for long enough that they have some sort of myopathy or rhabdomyolysis or some sort of acidemia that could, could be contributing to hyperkalemia. Of course, we want to avoid succinylcholine. This is sort of rare unless somebody is, I think this should be seen as rare unless somebody has been seizing for quite a while. Personally, I'm a fan of succinylcholine because after that five to 10 minute mark, you have your neurological assessment back. And most importantly, you can tell if someone's still seizing or not. On the other side, conversely, rocuronium is a cleaner agent. The only drawback with this is that I do think we have to make sure that we're aggressive with our sedation, with antiepileptics, with further benzos, uh, so that we can be confident that the patient is not still seizing, because of course we're not gonna be able to uh, ascertain that or do any neurological exam or, or, or frankly see if the patient is, is, is seizing or not if they're paralyzed. Matt, do you have a preference between rocuronium or succinylcholine? Uh, a little bit. First, let me say that what Lance is talking about is that succinylcholine lasts about 10 to 15 minutes when you give it IV. Rocuronium lasts 35 to 45 minutes, sometimes up to an hour. And a lot of people are using like a higher dose rock now. So you're probably at that 45 minutes minimum of paralysis and not being able to see if your patient's still actively seizing. So that's why Lance is differentiating between the two. Regarding my preference, I have a slight favoritism for rocuronium because it's a cleaner drug. And the truth is, I like that I I now have 45 minutes to get two IVs, get the patient completely undressed and naked, secure the tube, get them packaged for a CT scan, get a CT scanner, uh, get a CT scan done of their brain, and then bring them back without having to worry about them seizing through that. And But I think the most important part of this is while I'm doing this, I essentially tell the nurse to put them on the max dose of a Versed drip unless their blood pressure starts to drop and to let me know, which is not that common or worrisome with a Versed drip. Um, and then that's kind of what I practice, but I am open-minded. And if the pharmacist I'm with has a preference, I usually just do what they want. Um, or if the nurse is uncomfortable with that, I, I'll adjust my game plan. It's not a strong preference, but it is a slight favoritism for rock. Yeah, I, I'll provide the opposite point to that. I feel like I tend to prefer succinylcholine in these patients. In In my mind, I want to know <clears throat> as soon as I can if they're still seizing. I don't want to send this patient to the scanner, even if they're maxed out on a drip, uh, with them still seizing and me not knowing it. I'd rather keep them in the emergency department and fix their seizures before I move on to the next steps in management. Now, that being said, this might be a little scenario dependent. 
Certainly, if we feel like the seizures are due to some other serious cause, such as a traumatic brain injury, or there's other life threats that we need to get to as quickly as possible, then that may sway me towards your point of view, Matt, with wanting to get rocuronium so that you can get a lot of other things done quickly and might just be a little scenario dependent. And I've had that case, the intracranial hemorrhage that was in status uh, that, you know, it took 90 minutes to figure that out. Um, cause we were up to titrating anti-epileptics and then finally got them in the scanner. Did it make a difference in outcome? I don't, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. To talk shop a little bit in, you know, we will max them out on benzos. Then we'll give an IV anti-epileptic, something like, uh, a lot of medics have probably heard of Kepra. Sometimes people use Depakote or Dilantin IV. The next line after that, if they're still seizing and we can't get them over to CT scan, is to do like phenobarbital or pentobarbital. And then the final thing, if you can't break status, is you bring them to the OR and they use the anesthesia gas like sevoflurane, and they they essentially put them on, you know, full anesthesia to try and stop the seizure. And that's the that's the end of the line. So where, where in that you're comfortable scanning someone is a choice we all have to make. Um, but for the medics, the biggest take home is don't be afraid of benzodiazepines. And that's a good segue. Once, once we have this patient intubated, how, how should we progress with our post-intubation sedation? Fantastic, Ross. You can't talk about RSI without talking about post-intubation sedation, right? So when we're in the department or up in the unit and we're starting something like propofol, the question is, well, does propofol count as an anti-epileptic? Well, it's a difficult answer. We know that propofol works on GABA and in theory is a anti-seizure medication, but I think it all depends on what doses you're running that propofol at. So I would caution against running propofol at a cool 20, 10 to 20 mics per kilo per minute, which is on the low end. So I'd say no on those doses. I believe that we need to be running at least 50 to 60 mics per kilo per minute with propofol to be able to call it an anti-epileptic and to get that anti-seizure mechanism out of it. Of course, just like our induction doses, these doses are difficult to reach without causing some sort of hypotension. And so as you see, it's all kind of a game. How aggressive can you get with sedation? medications without causing hypotension. So propofol may be great, but your high doses to suppress seizure activity may be precluded by the patient's hypotension, in which case you're going to be reaching for something more like Versed pushes post-intubation. Yeah, I think Versed pushes are a safe option. Uh, Again, kind of reaching those doses. um, I don't think we should be as concerned about uh, midazolam versed uh, with causing hypotension. It's not quite as vasoactive uh, as propofol is. So we've talked about how important benzodiazepines are in first-line therapy. We're going to give a, a dose, a whopping dose, right up front as our first-line agent. We're going to repeat that once if the patient's refractory to that first dose. But let's say we've given two doses of benzodiazepines now. We're at the hospital. The following medications we're going to talk about, a lot of agencies may not carry. And so you may even be reaching for a third dose of benzodiazepines if they're seizing. But say we're in the hospital now and we're reaching towards our second line agents after benzodiazepines. What are those going to be? Right. So I think it's certainly safe to give another dose of benzos. It's certainly within reason, even after we've kind of hit our max uh, according to our guideline recommendations. 
Uh, but now we're in the hospital. Now we're in the emergency department. We have more drugs uh, at our side um, to talk. You know, uh, in, in, so to talk about our second line agents after benzodiazepines, uh, I'll throw kind of one more piece of literature out there, and that was the ESAT trial. It was just published in 2019 after the more recent guidelines, but sort of plays into what those guidelines say as well. So this trial was a large randomized trial that essentially compared our second line agents to one another. So we're talking about Keppra, valproic acid, and phenytoin. So these were all compared to each other, thankfully at proper guideline recommend doses, which by the way, I think this trial really got us into routinely treating with the right doses of Keppra. But all three of these drugs performed equally in terms of their anti-epileptic activity and also their adverse events. So they were all equal across the board. Now, all things being equal, this is what really put Keppra on the map as our first line of our second line agents for a few reasons. One, it can be infused quickly, uh, quicker than the other two agents. And two, something that pharmacists are much more familiar with, but logistically, how do we come up with valproic acid and phenytoin? These two drugs are both considered hazardous agents by NIOSH, our occupational safety uh, authorities, and therefore have to be compounded. They have to be hand-delivered from pharmacy. They infuse slower. And so there's lots of log logistical challenges around these two drugs. So even though the ESET trial a couple years ago showed that these drugs are equally effective and um, also have similar adverse event profiles. We know from long-term safety data from our other trials that Keppra is actually way cleaner of a drug in terms of adverse reactions and that valproic acid and phenytoin both have a lot of, of adverse effects. So this has re really shot Keppra up as our kind of first of our second line agents and is what we kind of turn to very routinely now uh, after we've kind of exhausted our benzodiazepines. All right. So Keppra is going to be our go-to second line agent in the emergency department. And then if that's ineffective, we're going to be reaching towards our third line agents, which might be one of those either two drugs that you just discussed. And, and really, I think in my mind, if you're reaching for a third line agent at that point, you should really be considering if you need to intubate the patient and move forward with heavy sedation or, or even a coma, a medically induced coma. Um, so thanks for giving us a little insight to the emergency department care. And, and now that we've reached the end here, can you just wrap it all up and summarize what we learned here today, the major take-home points? Yeah, definitely. So I had a couple take-home points today, Ross. Uh, one, treat early, treat aggressively with benzodiazepines. Know these guideline-based doses. Again, lorazepam or Ativan, four milligrams times two doses. Or midazolam, 10 milligrams intramuscularly times one. These are doses that you should feel comfortable with that are both appropriate and safe. Again, uh, the cutoff for weight-based dosing is less than 40 kilograms. And for Ativan, that's 0.1 mg per kg below 40 kilos. And for metdazolam, it's 0.2 mg per kg in these smaller people. So secondly, another take-home point is, uh, again, there's an unnecessary fear of hypotension and respiratory depression with benzos. Uh, benzos and fentanyl for that matter, not that we're giving it for status, but, but important to remember that these drugs aren't directly vasoactive. It's really that sympathetic surge and central nervous system sympathetic outflow that we're inhibiting and dampening with these drugs. And so with that, as kind of a secondary action, comes decreased catecholamines, 
Uh, obviously, sometimes that's the only thing that the patient is using to compensate uh, for their illness. Uh, and so, you know, uh, there's an unnecessary fear, I think, with, with, with benzos of causing hypotension. Um, but be aware that, that, you know, by virtue of sedation could also decrease blood pressure. So I'm not going to say that it's, it's you know, sh- not something to, to, to totally consider unexpected. Uh, thirdly, we talked about RSI agents. Uh, RSI agents, they involve a complex discussion. Ultimately, there are no right or wrong choices, in my opinion. Just understanding and appreciating the profile of each drug. I mean, this could certainly be a, a right choice or a wrong choice, depending on, on the patient. Uh, but ultimately, always be aware um, of, of, of these pros and cons. And ultimately, uh, knowing when you've paralyzed somebody, uh, knowing that they may need some sedation as well. Ross, so I think the take home for people working on the ambulance is don't be afraid of appropriate dosing of benzodiazepines, whether that's lorazepam, aka Ativan, or midazolam, aka Versed. And don't be afraid to do that more than once on your way to the hospital. Yeah, and maybe even more than twice if they're still seizing and you're not at the hospital yet. Awesome. Can I pick your brain about situations that annoyed me when I was paramedic? Go for it. So despite what you know about me now as a rule breaker, I was pretty uptight as a paramedic, um, pretty by the book. And I would only be willing to give benzodiazepines if the patient was actively seizing. And I had this one old timer once and we went on this call where we picked up a seizure patient on the fourth floor of uh, the equivalent of uh, projects in Orlando, Florida. And we had no elevator. So we had to carry this guy, the two of us down on a backboard. And the guy wasn't seizing. And the old timer was like, I'm going to give two milligrams of Ativan before we carry him. And I was like, we're not allowed to do that. And he was like, we're not we're, we're not allowed to do it, but we are allowed to do it. More importantly, if he starts seizing while we're halfway down the stairs, that's way worse than us maybe or maybe not being allowed to give him lorazepam. And we did it, and then I was like, that's a really brave guy and a really good reason to break the rules. And, and I started being a little more open-minded after that. And then there were the cases where person had a seizure, and by the time you get there, they're not seizing anymore, but they are now in like the agitated protocol and they're fighting and you can't calm them down. You can't redirect them. And I was like, technically we can't give uh, benzodiazepines for this. And, uh, and now I'm like, absolutely give, give it. It's only going to help uh, every angle of this scenario. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. If the, if you would give your paramedics a little wiggle room in scenarios like that. Yeah, I think so. I think you need a little bit of freedom to have some creativity to do the best thing for that patient in front of you. And it's going to be a little different every single time for for the patient scenario. I think that in the postictal stage, if you have somebody who you're reaching for sedation because they're agitated and you think that that agitation is due to a, a seizure that they may have just had, then I think benzo is going to be your right sedative medication that you're going to be reaching for over something like haloperidol or droperidol. 
So I agree with that. I also agree with the patient who maybe just finished seizing and is postictal, but maybe not combative, but you have to get them down a narrow stairwell and you don't want them to start fighting you in the middle of a stairwell and tip themselves over a backboard. Absolutely. I don't think it's unreasonable to give them a dose of benzodiazepines at that point. Maybe not the full status epilepticus dose that we talked about, but uh, certainly a, a little bit to make things safer overall for both you and the patient as you uh, exit the scene. Yeah, this is one of those things, uh, if you don't learn it from an old timer, just the next time you see your medical director or assistant or associate medical director, pick their brain about scenarios like this that you think of in your head. And, and I guarantee you the vast majority of them will be like, yeah, I think that's fine. And then you'll kind of know that, you know, it's it's technically not outside the protocol and, and they would back you up on something like that. And then as always, when in doubt, give us a call um, and we'll get you through whatever situation you're in. Yeah. And remember two or more seizures without a return to baseline is still considered status epilepticus per the guidelines. This was an awesome podcast. Uh, Lance is amazing. I will do whatever he says whenever I'm working with him. Thank you, Lance. Thanks again, Lance. Uh, Matt's really hoping you forgive him for not showing up for these. And uh, we'll see all the rest of you listeners uh, next month for the next episode. Go ahead.